0: Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also possibly quite infamous women who achieved impressive things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience in Berlin. And on the podcast, we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. Wherever you might be joining us from, we're so glad you found us. We have an adventurous tale for you this time. And a bonus lady at the end. Here with me to help us get started is Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Derbyshire. Hi there, Katie. Hello, Susan. Katie, please, could you
1: introduce our lady for today? Yes, we're going to learn all about the self-educated, intrepid Victorian explorer, Mary Kingsley, who journeyed through West Africa in full Victorian mourning dress, as you do. Or, or you don't. <laughs> Well, I don't. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you will want to see this, though. And uh, photos of Mary and links to her books are on our website, Uh Now, Katie, who is our presenter?
1: Ah, well, it's my co-partner in crime, uh, charming Dutch Dead Lady Show co-founder, Florian Dozens, who is an editor, a translator, and a writer. And he's very good at his job. So...
0: Um, Actually, this particular presentation on Mary Kingsley was recorded at a special event, the Dead Ladies' Salon, a smaller, more intimate gathering here in Berlin. And since it was hosted by our dear friend Sebastian in his apartment, you might catch a few sounds that we don't usually have in our recordings. (laughs) Uh, This includes a random
1: doorbell and a burbling
0: baby. (laughs) The
1: baby didn't enjoy it as much as the adults.
0: No, I think it left at halftime. I must add that this was done by my special request. Actually, Florian spoke about Mary Kingsley. When was that? It was a while ago. Oh, maybe maybe two years ago, a long time ago. It was one of the very first shows yeah. of uh, pre-tape. <clears throat> um, and I just fell in love with her. And I really wanted her. I, w- <laughs> I really wanted him to tell the story again for all of you. And yeah, for me too. So now, without further ado, Florian Duisand presents the life of Mary Kingsley.
2: So um, I first came across Mary Kingsley when I was reading a list of intrepid Victorian lady explorers that sent me immediately into a Wikipedia tailspin, as I'm sure you've all had before. I I encountered, for instance, uh, Isabella Bird, this is Marianne North, and Fanny Bullock-Workman, Um, who climbed the Himalayas and planted a placard at the top saying, votes for women.
1: Uh,
2: But I was immediately intrigued when I read about Mary Kingsley, who was traipsing through the mangrove forests of West Africa in full Victorian garb, mainly through land that now belongs to Gabon and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, She was also the first Western woman to climb the 4,000 meter high Mount Cameroon, Instead of a placard or a flag, what Mary did is she left her calling card at the top. <laughs> Reading her work, it's immediately clear why her first book propelled her to fame and a hectic lecture schedule. Her reporting is a sharp and slightly ironic in tone. See, for instance, this brief story that I'm about to read you about the pitfalls of traveling through the jungle on foot. About five o'clock, I noticed a path which I'd been told I should meet with, and when met with, I must follow. The path was slightly indistinct, but by keeping my eye on it, I could see it. Presently I came to a place where it went out, but appeared again on the other side of a clump of underbrush fairly distinctly. I made a shortcut for it, and the next news was I was in a heap, on a lot of spikes, some 15 feet or so below ground level, at the bottom of a bag-shaped game pit. It is at times like these you realize the blessing of a good thick skirt. <laughs> Had I paid heed to the advice of many people in England who ought to have known better and did not have to do it themselves, and adopted masculine garments, I should have been spiked to the bone and done for. Whereas, say for a good many bruises, Here I was with the fullness of my skirt tucked under me, sitting on nine ebony spikes, some 12 inches long, in comparative comfort, howling lustily to be hauled out." (laughs) Uh, The woman who wrote these words was born in Islington, London, in 1862. She'd keep a Cockney accent for the rest of her life. I can't do a Cockney accent, so I'm just reading it as though she were a fake American. She was 31 when she first went to Africa. That was only her third trip abroad. Very few Western women could conceive of such a thing uh, in 1893, to go to Africa not as a wife or a missionary or a nurse, let alone an entomologist or a geologist, but simply to see what they could see. Sure, she told her friends that she would study fish and fetish, um, not the bondage kind but West African religious <laughs> beliefs. Yeah. In truth, she was interested in everything. This icon, for instance, Mavungu from the kingdom of Kokango, now at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford. Uh, Mary bought it from Portuguese settlers who had confiscated it from um, the natives, and she placed it in her entrance hall. So it was the first thing you saw. So this is a, like a nail icon. You've seen one of these before, I think. So what made Mary, who had never traveled much before, decide to go exploring? She writes, the whole of my childhood and youth was spent at home in the house and garden, the living outside world I saw little of and cared less for, for I felt myself out of place at the few parties I ever had the chance of going to, and I deservedly was unpopular with my own generation, for I knew nothing of play and such things. But this was not a superiority of mind in me at all. The truth was I had a great amusing world of my own other people did not know or care about. That was in the books in my father's library. Now, though her brother was schooled very, very expensively, Mary got no formal training. Um, Her only training was in German, uh, teaching herself Sanskrit, Latin, chemistry, all from her father's books. The house was cramped. You can see it in this picture here. This is in Newgate. They've moved from Islington to Newgate. All but the front windows bricked up to save on heating. Uh, And it was filled with her mother's dogs. Now, already unusual as a kid, Mary uh, instead kept a fighting cock called Attila. Uh, Now, her wig-wearing atheist father was home only two or three months a year, working as a private physician to royals and aristocrats. She'd later learn and keep secret that she was born, in fact, of a shotgun wedding between him and his cook.
1: Uh,
2: Mary (laughs) Mary found solace in her dad's books on ethnology, exploration, and natural history. And perhaps because she wasn't concerned with any one particular field, Kingsley's writing sparkles with wit. Here she is on encountering a pod or a bloat or a crash, um, as they are called, of hippos in our canoe. One immense fellow, hearing us, stands up and shows himself about six feet from us in the grass, gazes calmly and then yawns a yawn a yard wide and grunts his news to his companions, some of whom, there is evidently a large herd, get up and stroll towards us with all the flowing grace of Pantechnicon vans in motion. (laughs) We put our helm paddles hard as starboard and leave that bank. These hippos always look to me as if they were the first or last creatures in the animal world. At present, I am undecided whether nature tried her prentice hand on them in her earliest youth or whether having got thoroughly tired of making them delicately beautiful antelopes Coralines, butterflies, and orchids. She just said, goodness, I'm quite worn out with this finicking work. Here, just put these viscera into big bags. I can't bother anymore. As we heard earlier, she dressed like a maiden aunt, even in the deepest jungle, and at lectures would wear an old-fashioned black high-necked shirt, a long black skirt, and a small black fur bonnet. At some venues, she was not allowed to speak, as she was a woman, instead being forced to sit in the audience to hear a man read her lecture, which we're slightly repeating here, obviously. But <laughs> <laughs> we acknowledge it. Um, though her first trip to West Africa lasted only three to four months, she was immediately fascinated. And she wrote to publisher Macmillan, who was at that point still run by Mr. McMillan, Um, who she'd sent some of her father's ethnological writing, and she pitched a book of her own. On reading a few samples, however, he complained that the tone wasn't quite feminine enough. Mm -hmm. To which she responded, I really cannot draw the trail of the petticoats over the African coast of all places. Neither can I have a picture of myself in trousers or any other excitement of that sort added. I went out there as a naturalist, not as a sort of circus. She briefly suggests changing the name on the cover to M. H. Kingsley, is it JK Rowling kind of strategy. <laughs> but in the end, the, the publisher just went with Mary Kingsley. <laughs> Reading her excellent biography by Dia Burkett, I began to see a different side of Kingsley's, ones that struggled with the conventions of British life, writing as she did to a friend, that her actual reason for heading to Africa was that she was, and I quote, dead tired and feeling no one had need of me anymore when my mother and father died within six weeks of each other in 92 and my brother went off to the east. I went down to West Africa to die. West Africa amused me and was kind to me and was scientifically interesting and did not want to kill me just then. So after years of caring for her mother who was likely suffering of Alzheimer's Mary would use black-ringed mourning stationery for all her correspondence for the rest of her life. She never married, and she wasn't the only one. In The 1890s, a quarter of all British women would never marry. The first two times she went to Africa, between 1893 and 1895, she would go for 18 months altogether. The idea of a woman traveling through Africa alone meaning with like nine local guides (laughs) uh, was so outlandish. And the Western population at that time was so small uh, that Kingsley was basically free to do as she pleased. Like there was no one there to police her. Uh, She paid her own way by engaging in in trade along the way. And uh, no one would confuse a lone white lady for an emissary of a colonial government either, making her passage among hostile tribes who were considered savage cannibals far easier. As for being an unaccompanied female, every time someone would ask where her husband was, which was, of course, every day, (laughs) she'd say, I am looking for him (laughs) and point in the direction she wished to travel. (laughs) Now, she herself didn't quite escape the morals of her time either. She didn't think it quite couth to travel on buses, for instance, and definitely disapproved of bicycles. She was also against the suffragettes, shrieking androgens, she called them, and opposed to women joining organizations like the Royal Geographical Society. At this time, she wasn't the only one. Punch Magazine wrote a little poem about it. A lady an explorer, a traveler in skirts, the notion's just a trifle too seraphic. Let them stay and mind the babies, or hem our ragged shirts, but they mustn't, can't, and shan't be geographic. (laughs) (laughs) she also believed that the so-called white race was different from the black one yet reading her thoughts on the matter now you get a sense that they were more complicated than those of her contemporaries as she wrote i feel certain that a black man is no more an undeveloped white man than a woman is an undeveloped man as her fame grew she started mingling with the likes of alice Sopford green a likable widow who hung out with florence nightingale a young winston churchill Rudyard Kipling, etc., and Mary started pivoting from identifying herself as an ichthyologist, fish. Fish. Oh, cool. <laughs> fish? fish, or or an entomologist. Uh, though she did discover at least seven different kinds of fish, and I use quote you know quotes around discover, um, and uh, you know at least a few were named after her. <laughs> Uh, and instead, Mary started arguing for a more specialized ethnology, a novel idea in a field that was largely engaged in comparative ethnology, which is more interested in finding the things primitive tribes have in common rather than studying individual tribes or areas in detail. And reading The Golden Bow, which is a very, very thick classic um, study by james fraser on magic and religion she was so insulted by his eurocentricity of course she didn't use that word but (laughs) that's what she's talking about when he defined the religions of west africa as magic um, that she wrote to him allow me to warn you of a danger in your view under that view the mass of the roman catholic church is magic under your view the anglican holy communion is magic Of course, I have no objection to you taking this view, but I want to know how you're going to get on with the
1: bishops."
2: (laughs) To Macmillan, who she, um, that was his publisher and hers, she wrote, I really must write up my travels in England for the benefit of Africa. Um, And this belief also shows in her lobbying efforts. By the time she went back to England, she started promoting a so-called third way of looking at the colonial African subjects. This meant opposing the missionaries who were trying to make the natives into proper Christian citizens, um, contextualizing taboo topics like polygamy and cannibalism and fighting a temperance movement inspired liquor tax levied on the special gin exported to the colonies. There was such a thing apparently. <laughs> Uh, And she argued that Africans certainly weren't more dangerous drunks than the Londoners she saw out on Vauxhall Road. And when the government, the British government, proposed a hot tax, which was a kind of property tax, Kingsley sent countless letters to newspapers and political players using lectures and op-eds and various tea time lady back channels to make the colonial secretary know that this wouldn't be taken lightly, as it would suggest that the Brits were taking actual ownership over people's homes, who were now forced to pay rent in the form of this hut tax. And sure enough, riots ensued. They didn't listen to Mary. This is a picture of Bai Bure, who led a rebellion against the tax in Sierra Leone. All this reveals the extent to which she wished the West Africans would be left alone. Though still a staunch imperialist, Kingsley's version was a more liberal one. Instead of making the colonies into mirror Englands, Kingsley suggested they not export English culture, but English goods instead. Hers was an informal economic imperialism. The government of Africa by Africans doing away with, as she said, missionaries, stockbrokers, good intentions, ignorance, and maxim guns. This may make her sound quite modern, and it was in parts, but it should also be said that she was against introducing things like coinage and railways. Kingsley believed that Africa was better off remaining as it was. With her um, health declining, her brother sponging off her to fund his very cliche dabblings in Asian travel and Buddhism, and her lobbying efforts increasingly falling on deaf ears, Mary was feeling more and more worn out. And though she kept writing to her friends saying that she was really, no, really planning her next trip to Africa, it never quite materialized, even though the money was there. She may not have earned as much as her male contemporaries on the lecture circuit, but she certainly made enough to buy a house and to save up a substantial amount. She does not appear to have had any romantic relationships. Though at this point in 1899, she does seem to have fallen for one of the many many men who wrote to her asking for her advice on their African travels, bearing her soul to him in a heartbreaking 25-page response, of which I will quote only two paragraphs. (laughs) Um, The fact is, I am no more a human being than a gale of wind is. I've never had a human individual life. I've always been the doer of odd jobs and lived in the joys, sorrows, and worries of other people. It never occurs to me that I have any right to do anything more and now and then sit and warm myself at the fire of real human beings. I am grateful to them for letting me do this. I am fond of them, but I don't expect them to be fond of me. And it's just as well I don't, for there is not one of them who has ever cared for me apart from my service. Yes, that is why I offer to help you, sir. I am no better than the human beings I deal with in the matter of feeling. When they are happy and comfortable and smug, I lose an interest in them, as well as they with me. It is quite mutual, save that I have more reason to be grateful to them than they to me, for it is through them that I know this most amusing world. But it's the non-human world I belong to myself. My people are mangrove swamps and the sea and so on. We understand each other." Her hints that are sort of very clearly underlying this very passionate, very sad letter were to no avail. He did not even reply. When she finally booked passage back to Africa, homeward bound, she said in her last speech. The surge of the Boer War meant that she felt obliged to sail to South Africa first to help out as a nurse. She asked the man who she wrote that long letter to, to visit her the night before she left and she stayed home all night, but he never came. Aww. When, the, it gets so much worse. <laughs> When the man learned of her death just a year later, um, he would write the following very sparse entry in his otherwise meticulous and detailed diary: "Miss Kingsley is dead." Um, <laughs> that's it. After Mary arrived at the improvised hospital for wounded Boer soldiers in Boer prisoners in Simonstown, South Africa, Mary sounds both desperate and resigned. All this work here, the stench, the washing, the enemas, the bedpans, the blood, that is my world. Not London society, politics, that gallery into which I so strangely wandered, into which I don't care a hairpin if I never wander again. And a month later in one of her uh, last letters home to Alice Green, she writes, do not dream of in any way sacrificing yourself for any cause, set yourself to gain personal power, Don't grab the reins of power, but they are lying on the horse's neck. Quietly get them into your hands and drive. You can do it. You can do so much more than I in what our friend John Strachey calls the haute politique. And remember, it is the haute politique that makes me have to catch large, powerful men by the tails of their night shirts at midnight. Stand over them when they are sinking. Tie up their jaws when they are dead. Five and six jaws a night have I had to tie up of late. Damn the haute politique. Within a few weeks in June 1900, she'd be dead of complications from the typhoid fever raging in the camp. She was almost 38 and buried at sea. Green, her friend, would take Kingsley's words and run with them, forging a new pressure group, a sort of lobby organization in colonial politics, some simply called Kingsleyism, which I think is how I first heard about her in high school becoming an important force in the fight for, as they called it, an understanding of African social and legal systems and the importance of commercial interests, which sounds a little neoliberal, but maybe it's better than very colonial. Um, and she also founded the Royal African Society in Mary's name, and it's, that still exists. Most memorials at the time, however, were patronizing, with one women's magazine saying, for all her courage, her almost manly strength, (laughs) there was an intense femininity about her. Everything a good housewife should know, she did. Her father refused to allow his daughter to learn German until she had thoroughly mastered ironing and starching. (laughs) Uh, Her shitty brother, Charlie, would half-heartedly promise Macmillan a biography, that he cashed the advance on, but never delivered, um, squandering her substantial fortune as well as their parents and then dying in a hotel in Minehead. Mm. Seems like a suitably depressing place to go. But I'd like to leave you with a reminder to read the excellent biography that I mentioned earlier by Dia Burkett, um, to read Mary herself. There's even, this is like 700 pages, this book. It's enjoyable, but it's 700 pages. There's also a tiny little penguin edition of the hippo banquet that you could start with (laughs) that is maybe an easier in. And there's also One Dry Season by Caroline Alexander, um, a writer who followed in Mary's footsteps about 100 years after Mary did and and sort of actually managed to find most of the places that, that Mary describes also proving that she actually went there because of course there were many men who doubted her. And I would like to close with one of my favorite passages about her time traveling on the Ogowe River in what is now Gabon. While the men were getting their food, I mounted guard over our little possessions. And when they turned up to make things tidy in my hut, I walked off down to the shore by a path which we had elaborately avoided while coming to the village a very vertically inclined, slippery little path, but still the one whereby the natives went up and down to their canoes, which were kept tied up amongst the rocks. The moon was rising, illumining the sky, but not yet sending down her light on the foaming, flying Ague in its deep ravine. The scene was divinely lovely. On every side, out of the formless gloom, rose the peaks of the Sierra del Cristal. Tomanjauki, on the further side of the river, surrounded by his companion peaks, looked his grandest, silhouetted heart against the sky. In the darkness round me flitted thousands of fireflies, and out beyond this pool of utter night flew by unceasingly the white foam of the rapids. Sound there was none save their thunder. The majesty and beauty of the scene fascinated me, and I stood leaning with my back against a rock pinnacle, watching it. Do not imagine it gave rise in what I am pleased to call my mind, to those complicated poetical reflections natural beauty seems to bring out in other people's minds. It never works that way with me. I just lose all sense of human individuality, all memory of human life with its grief and worry and doubt, and become part of the atmosphere. If I have a heaven, that will be mine.
1: That was Florian Dozens talking about Mary Kingsley what you might not know is that part of our shows in berlin is always in german and we haven't included any of that material so far in the podcasts but at our last show susan spoke with presenter binur Cavuşlu. she told us about her dead lady halide edib Adıvar, who was a turkish activist and a writer of legendary achievements and she even has a crater on the planet Venus named after her by NASA, which is something to aim for in life, don't you agree? So here's a little bit of their chat recorded in the buzzing atmosphere of the break at our last show.
3: I'm Binur Çavuşlu and I'm currently studying political communication in Glasgow. And I also write for different uh, publications, student publications and uh, a Turkish German magazine in Berlin, my Maidet lady is a Turkish lady, a lady that has witnessed the transformation of the Ottoman Empire into the Republic and that has played a crucial role in this transformation herself. She's also laid the groundwork for um, women's rights in uh, modern Turkey, so she's a very crucial figure.
0: Here. And her name is?
3: Halide Edip Oduvar. Oduvar, her surname uh, means she has a name, That's probably due to the surname law that was actually introduced after the Republic was founded. And Halide means um, forever. Eternal. Eternal, yes. The eternal (laughs) one.
0: And I found it quite fascinating that she has these sort of two sides. She's responsible for completely changing the image of women and yet also driving forward the purpose of a country.
3: I think that's something actually she struggled with uh, a lot. First and foremost, I think she was an activist. She wanted to be part of change, positive change, be it for the Turkish people or for women in general. But she tried to reconcile those two things. Like, she was a devout nationalist, but also a devout feminist. But some of the nationalist principles um, that were crucial for creating a republic, the repressive measures, secularism and everything, She had a hard time accepting those because they also told women what to do and they forbade women to wear a veil, for example, to practice religion publicly, so that was a difficult thing for her. She basically wanted women to be able to do whatever they wanted. Um, But she also gave prescriptions, to be honest. I read somewhere that she said, a good lady has to be a Muslim and a nationalist. And I think that's a recipe um, that probably most people at that time couldn't follow. They didn't know what that meant. They didn't know what modernism meant. It was like a cultural clash. I think she clashed with her community um, and she wrote about women who clashed with their communities. But through that clash, I think she wanted progress.
0: And she was also very hands-on. I mean, she was involved in teaching women and having women who were educated teach other women. And we also saw this great picture of her with a rifle on her shoulder.
3: Yeah, so she uh, was such a uh, strong nationalist that she thought, I can't just sit here and watch things happening. Because she believed that women hadn't placed it, it wasn't just about keeping the children safe or uh, taking care of the house, it was uh, the minds of women, strong minds of women and dedication that uh, she thought the army needed. So she went there and a lot of the pictures that we showed in the show, show her amongst a lot of men, she's the only woman there. Um, she also took important positions at the military. She gave commands, she made plans, she uh, was involved in a strategy uh, at and she fought.
0: And how is she remembered today?
3: She's actually an important part of the literary canon. My friends from Turkey, um, they told me that they read her at school, but she's probably not one of the most well-known writers. If you'd ask any Turkish person, tell me the most, like five most famous uh, writers, they'd mention male names, not Halide. Whereas she published more than forty books, like novels and epic writing, <laughs> historic writing, non-fiction, she's still being read, but not like she's not highlighted. I think in a sense, uh, in the way that she deserves to be. But She's still recognised, but the reason why I chose her um, for this presentation is because I think she's quite like she is well known. Like her name is known in Turkey, but I want more people to know about her because. Uh, I think people know a little bit about the history of Turkey, you know, the uh, fall of the empire and the reconstruction, the modernism and everything. But they think of it in terms of politics and military, but there was like grassroots activism happening. And this woman was part of it. So I want people to know her name. She learned from a lot of movements, but um, improved them in the sense that she uh, accepted ethnic and religious minorities in her organization.
0: And so she's been also um, remembered on a postage stamp. She has this great crater named after her on Venus. And you mentioned that she had, there was a bust made and placed uh, in Square where she gave a famous talk, but it didn't stick around too long. Tell us what happened.
3: So they created this bust to just commemorate her um, achievements. I believe it was in the seventies, but it only stuck around for three days. I guess she's a contested figure because she had this fallout with uh, Atatürk. She was considered a dangerous mind. And I believe a lot of strong Kemalists and strong nationalists today just thought of her as this dangerous person, uh, maybe too open-minded for her own sake. So that's, that bust was uh, blown up, but another bust was just created recently, a couple of years ago yeah so that's still around Uh, i do think that there should be more uh, she should be commemorated everywhere
0: and thanks again to binar chavushlu for that summary of the life of halida edip adivar which lady would you like to see get a little more attention let us know via twitter facebook or instagram at dead Ladies show or drop us a line at info at deadladyshow.com our show notes, composed by the charming Katie Derbyshire, uh, will include photos of Mary and Halida, and um, possibly a couple hippopotami if I have my way. And they await you eagerly at deadladieshow.com, which is also home to our Hall of Dames, a list of all the ladies we have ever featured, or pretty much. Our theme song is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion, which you can find on SoundCloud which also hosts all episodes of the Dead Lady Show podcast. We're, of course, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, Acast, Pocket Casts, and Google Play Music. Thanks to Katie and all of you for joining us. I am Susan Stone.